I was 11 years old and just starting in the sixth grade when my family and I moved from where I was born to a city that was still within driving distance of all of my old friends and the old place, um, but still so far away from uh, a sort of life that might have been. And that's really the feeling of it, isn't it? Um, being 11 years old, and I can date my first serious attempt at writing and of really getting into reading uh, from that time. And it was just about the perfect time, too. If it had happened a few years later, it would have just been another bit of bullshit that took place during high school. But because it happened when I was still perhaps a child, uh, the image of childhood and uh, the idea of what I had lost and would never find again um, struck a chord with me uh, right away. I wrote a great deal in stories and in you know early high school novels about childhood. And when I finally came around to writing poetry, um, it seemed to be almost a given that uh, what poetry could do was illuminate uh, that thing that was childhood and the ways that we think about childhood and the ways that we remember it. And I was very lucky because within the first year that I began reading poetry seriously as well, which prompted me to start writing poetry, um, I came across two poems about childhood, which are extremely different, but both show uh, just what a, a great thing that writing poetry about childhood uh, what, what that can do and what that can mean for you. The first of these, and you'll see the, the just the difference in mood from these two pieces right away. Uh, the first of them is by Lawrence Ferlinghetti in his uh, book, A Coney Island of the Mind. And it's just a small poem that says this. The penny candy store beyond the L is where I first fell in love with unreality. Jelly beans glowed in the semi-gloom of that September afternoon. A cat upon the counter moved among the licorice sticks and Tootsie Rolls and Oh Boy gum. Outside, the leaves were falling as they died. A wind had blown away the sun. A girl ran in. Her hair was rainy. Her breasts were breathless in the little room. Outside, the leaves were falling, and they cried, too soon, too soon. And there you get a bit of humor, looseness, carefree, uh, being a kid, going to buy candy, and an early experience of, of a crush of, of love. And then you come to, <laughs> uh, the mood couldn't be uh, more different, but uh, the message hit me just as well, uh, just as deeply as Ferlinghetti's did. This is from T.S. Eliot's uh, Burnt Norton, and it says this, Other echoes inhabit the garden. Shall we follow? Quick, said the bird, find them, find them, round the corner, through the first gate, into our first world. Shall we follow the deception of the thrush? 
into our first world. There they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure over the dead leaves, in the autumn heat through the vibrant air, and the bird called in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery. And the unseen eye-beam crossed, for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. There they were as our guests, accepted and accepting, and so we moved, and they, in a formal pattern, along the empty alley, into the box circle, to look down into the drained pool. Dry the pool, dry concrete, brown-edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight. And the lotus rose quietly, quietly. The surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. And of course, in all of that, that's about 20, 25 lines. Um, only in one of those lines uh, does it say, for the leaves were full of children, and then the next line, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. I like that both Eliot and Ferlinghetti get the kids and the leaves. Outside the leaves were falling, Ferlinghetti says, and they cry too soon, too soon. I'm not sure when it was that I learned this, and if that's maybe why I became attached to this uh, stanza of Eliot's, but I came to learn two things right away about him because his poetry got to me so quickly. The first is that he uh, went to this place where, uh, where he, he came to this, uh, this pool, uh, sort of run-down pool on this property when he was in his mid-40s, probably the age that I am right now, and had a sort of epiphany or an illumination of, uh, about the past, about um, attitudes that he already held about the past. I think he says somewhere that um, every poet basically has all of their ideas. All of their ideas come from experiences they had before they were 11 or 12 years old. And then I uh, read somewhere in uh, one of the biographies that uh, when Eliot was a child, I want to say this happened in St. Louis, but it could have happened in Boston as well, he happened upon the playground of a girl's school just after all of them had gone in for recess. And so he was in this playground that was emptied, but uh, around him, uh, where the, the trees were bordering the, um, the playground, were the classrooms, and he could hear uh, the girls sort of whispering and giggling about this kid who was in their playground. Um, so even though only two lines there mention children specifically, the entire idea of um, round the gate and into our first world, uh, this seems to be about nothing but childhood and the kind of memories uh, that we have. I should say Lawrence Ferlinghetti lived 
from 1919 to 2021, and T.S. Eliot from 1888 to 1965. And this is what uh, Seamus Heaney had to say late in his life. He lived from 1939 to 2013, and this is one of the poems in his uh, sequence called uh, Squarings. This is number 40 in that sequence. He says, I was four, but I turned 400, maybe, encountering the ancient, dampish feel of a clay floor, maybe 4,000 even. Anyhow, there it was, milk poured for cats in a rank puddled place, splash darkened mold around the terracotta watercrock ground of being, body's deep obedience to all its shifting tenses, a half-door opening directly into starlight. Out of that earth house I inherited a stack of singular cold memory weights to load me, hand and foot, in the scale of things. And that really says it all right there, doesn't it, in the space of 12 lines. Um, this is a memory everybody can have. At some point, our experiences of childhood and adolescence and uh, growing up, old age, middle age, and the rest of it sort of separate off. And uh, there are just certain things that we cannot identify with in the lives of other people. But some version of this, I think, can be Imagine the lives of most people, and here Heaney says uh, it is the ground of being. Um, he says out of that earth house, but it could be anybody's house, anybody's apartment, anybody's earliest years. Uh, any of those, we could say that we inherited a stack of singular cold memory weights to load me hand and foot in the scale of things. Now, a much longer version of that same idea, I think, is from the uh, American poet Denise Levertov, who was born in 1923 and died in 1997. And as you understand here, she was born in Britain but came to the United States very young. But this is a poem of hers called A Map of the Western Part of the County of Essex in England. And it says this. Something forgotten for twenty years. Though my fathers and mothers came from Cordoba and Vitebsk and Carnivon, and though I am a citizen of the United States, and less a stranger here than anywhere else perhaps, I am Essex-born. Cranbrook Wash called me into its dark tunnel. The little streams of Valentines heard my resolves. Roding held my head above water when I thought it was drowning me, and Hanalt only a haze of thin trees stood between the red double-decker buses and the boar hunt. The spirit of merciful Philippa glimmered there. Perigo Park knew me, and Clavering and Havering Atbauer. Stanford Rivers lost me in osier beds. Stapleford Abbots sent me safe home on the dark road after Simeon quiet evensong. Wanstead drew me over and over into its basic poetry. Into its serpentine lake I saw bass vials among the golden dead leaves. Through its trees the ghosts 
of a great house. In Ilford High Road I saw the multitudes passing pale, under the light of flaring sundown, seven kings in somber starry robes gathered at seven kings, the place of law where my birth and marriage are recorded and the death of my father. Woodford Wells, where an old house was called the Naked Beauty, a white statue forlorn in its garden, saw the meeting and parting of two sisters, forgotten and further away, the hill before Thaxted, where peace befell us, not once but many times, all the Ivans dreaming of, dreaming of their villages, all the Marias dreaming of their walled cities, picking up fragments of new worlds slowly, not knowing how to put them together, nor how to join image with image. Now I know how it was with you. An old map, made long before I was born, shows ancient rites of way where I walked when I was ten, burning with desire for the world's great splendors. A child who traced voyages indelibly all over the Atlas, who now in a far country remembers the first river, the first field, bricks and lumber dumped in it ready for building, that new smell, and remembers the walls of the garden, the first light. That actually might be another version of the Eliot poem. You come back to the garden again. Uh, the wall, the river, and the water, and the leaves, and everything else. Um, talk about writing what you know, just stuffing a poem filled with all of the specific place names of your first world, quite literally, and then uh, breaking out into all of it, and just uh, talking about a child who traced voyages indelibly all over the Atlas. I love how that poem is able to do that. Um, this is from the American poet Robert Hayden, who lived from 1913 to 1980. And this is one that is about a parent, but I think it is more from the point of view of the child. And it also brings back a very vivid childhood memory of mine that I will mention after I read the poem. Uh, this is called Those Winter Sundays, and it says, Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? That last stanza is worth reading again. Uh, as a child, not realizing what your father has just done, and waking up, and it says, speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know, what did I know, of love's austere and lonely offices? 
And for some reason, that poem reminds me of standing in front of the the kitchen window in the house that I was born in. This is before we moved. In the morning, uh, because my parents were both teachers, so my brother and I would go to school literally with them when we were in grade school. And he had this tough old brush, this tough old comb, I should say. Um, and he would just go at my hair, parting it on the side, and just comb it extremely well. And um, I just uh, remember that, standing stock still, and the serious look on my dad's face as he was combing my hair. Uh, this next poem is by the wonderful Laurie Sheck, who was born in 1953. Uh, this comes from a book called The Willow Grove that I recorded, I think, 13 or more poems from very early on in this podcast. And this one may not have been among them, I'm not sure. But this book is filled with poems about uh, being a child and uh, learning what it is that kids do. And in this case, the poem is simply called uh, Learning to Read. I know there is something that mocks us, and it is cold and distant and cannot be hurt. Even the grown-up's hands are small against it. More and more night twines its ragged threads into my hair. I hear the racked branches, ruined stars. But here, in the primer, it is different. The sun is yellow, its face is round and smiles. The leaves are oval, green. And beneath them, five letters clump together forming the word green so that it stays like a metal toy train on the whiteness, as if it didn't ever want to leave. It must have traveled far to get here, and now its engine stilled. It lingers beneath a sky steady, blue, and safe. For now, the words are orderly. Black barrels, lacquered boxes, shelves, each page, an outstretched palm holding a dollhouse's willfully protected treasures. For now, they take me in where the brokenness can't find me. The house is red. The cat is gray. The girl is running and jumping in the grass. I do not know yet how the words will hiss and treble, tremble on other fuller pages how they'll shatter and creak, or how they'll harbor an unspeakable wildness inside them, like a bird crazily flinging itself against plate glass, or how they'll become an insomniac's wandering tail, and hands into which I must place again and again the remote and human blankness of my hands. These are the deep black shapes of remembrance and forgetting. Years and the pages thicken with more words, becoming a forest, a maze of displacement, a wrecked lullaby, a beautiful and fierce derailment. Becoming a child's face, forever staring through a window's shattered glass, a murderer's knife, a slashed canvas, deepest black of disfigurement and healing, soft lips on a forehead 
leaving no trace of their kiss. Gravestones in snow, a mouth obsessively unnaming what it's known. And of course, before I was a parent, I loved the part in this poem where she pulls back from the wonder of being a child learning to read, and she says, uh, I do not know yet how the words will hiss and tremble on other fuller pages. I don't realize what words will do to me as an adult when I realize how strange and um, uh, uneven they are and what they can do to your life and uh, how they can and cannot express what you want them to. But watching my daughter learn to read in the last year and watching her read out loud now and watching her uh, write little stories and write little pamphlets now, um, I'm not quite sure that that's true. Uh, she might not have the way to articulate it the way that Laurie Scheck does here and the way she imagines her adult self doing here. But I, I think that part of the reason that she, my daughter learned to read at all and part of the reason that I wake up in the morning and she's been writing in one of her pamphlets, uh, one of her little notebooks, writing a story uh, for an hour or more already while I've still been sleeping. Uh, one of the reasons that she's been doing this at all is because um, it very clearly is weird. It's not a safe thing. It's uh, a vastly uh, energetic and weird and adult and grown-up and uh, creative, literally creative thing to do, to write about herself or to imagine a story and to suddenly put it on paper and then to read it to us later and just feel that pride of having created something. But... Um, that is still one of my favorite of, of Laurie Scheck's poems. And, um, and you'll see that this poem by Theodore Ruthka, the American poet, who lived from 1908 till... Hold on, I want to get his ears down for you. I typed it wrong there. 1963, 1908-1963. Uh, you'll see what I mean here. This is called My Papa's Waltz. This is definitely uh, a childhood memory. My Papa's Waltz. The whiskey on your breath could make a small boy dizzy, but I hung on like death. Such waltzing was not easy. We romped until the pans slid from the kitchen shelf. My mother's countenance could not unfrown itself. The hand that held my wrist was battered on one knuckle. At every step you missed, my right ear scraped a buckle. You beat time on my head with a palm caked hard by dirt, then waltzed me off to bed, still clinging to your shirt. That's a beautiful little bit there. This next one is from the Irish poet Avon Boland, uh, who just died. She uh, lived from 1944 until 2020. And this is another one who, whenever I do an episode of poems about parenting, um, I will include probably uh, two or three of hers there, because so many of her great poems are about being a woman and a mother and a mother of daughters. But I was able to find this gem about her uh, her memories of being in school and uh, learning Latin. And this is called 
uh, the Latin lesson. And it says this, Easter light in the convent garden, the eucalyptus tree glitters in it, a bell rings for the first class. Today, the sixth book of the Aeneid, an old nun calls down the corridor, manners girls, where are your manners? Last night in his Lenten talk, the local priest asked us to remember everything is put here for a purpose. Even eucalyptus leaves are suitable for making oil from to steep wool in, to sweeten our blankets and gabardines. My forefinger crawls on the lines. A storm light comes in from the bay. How beautiful the words look, how vagrant and strange on the page, before we crush them for their fragrance, and crush them again to discover the pathway to hell, and that these shadows and their shadow bodies chittering and mobbing on the far shore, signaling their hunger for the small usefulness of a life, are the dead. And how before the bell will, and how before the bell will, I hail the black keel, and flatter the dark boatman, and cross the river, and still keep a civil tongue in my head. And of course, the sixth book of the Aeneid is when Aeneas goes down to the underworld and sees the shades of the dead, including the shades of uh, the shade of his father. And that seems to to bring uh, that poem seems to mention kind of the same things the Laurie Sheck poem does of what we end up doing um, with words, maybe what school makes us do. Uh, with words. And now we come to uh, the longest poem that I will read here tonight, and it is by Dylan Thomas, 1914 to 1953. And I can still remember um, when I finally got a copy of Dylan Thomas's poetry when I was probably 18 or 19, um, the poem that I became attached to right away was this one, because it is such a uh, beautiful poem. Uh, unforgettable uh, evocation of nature and uh, childhood. And I hope I can do this poem justice here. But uh, it's sort of like trying to read um, Wordsworth's Immortality Ode um, in one go, but we'll give it a, a chance here. This is Dylan Thomas's Fern Hill. Now as I was young and easy under the apple boughs, about the lilting house and happy as the grass was green, the night above the dingle starry, time let me hail and climb, golden in the henidays of his eyes. And honored among wagons, I was prince of the apple towns, and once below a time, I lordly had the trees and leaves, trail with daisies and barley, down the rivers of the windfall light. And as I was green and carefree, famous among the barns about the happy yard and singing as the farm was home in the sun that is young once only, time let me play and be, golden in the mercy of his means, and green and golden I was huntsman and herdsman, 
the calves sang to my horn, the foxes on the hills barked clear and cold, and the Sabbath rang slowly in the pebbles of the holy streams. All the sun long it was running, it was lovely, the hay fields high as the house, the tunes from the chimneys, it was air and playing, lovely and watery and fire green as grass, and nightly under the simple stars, as I rode to sleep the owls were bearing the farm away, all the moon long I heard, blessed among the stables, the night jars, flying with the ricks and the horses, flashing into the dark. And then to awake, and the farm, like a wanderer white with dew, come back, the cock on his shoulder. It was all shining, it was Adam and Maiden. The sky gathered again, and the sun grew round that very day. So it must have been, after the birth of the simple light, in the first spinning place, the spellbound horses walking warm, out of the whinnying green stable, unto the fields of praise. And honored among foxes and pheasants by the gay house, under the new-made clouds, and happy as the heart was long, in the sun born over and over, I ran my heedless ways, my wishes raced through the house high hay, and nothing I cared at my sky-blue trades, that time allows and all is tuneful turning, so few in such morning songs, before the children green and golden follow him out of grace. Nothing I cared in the lamb-white days, that time would take me up to the swallow-thronged loft by the shadow of my hand, in the moon that is always rising, nor that riding to sleep I should hear him fly with the high fields, and wake to the farm forever fled from the childless land. Oh, as I was young and easy, in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. And what do you make of that poem? This next one, and I only have a few left here, is by the American poet Bridget Pegan Kelly, who lived from 1951 until 2016, I believe. And this is her poem called The Leaving, and we enter into a few poems that uh, are about um, adolescence. This is The Leaving. My father said I could not do it, but all night I picked the peaches. The orchard was still. The canals ran steadily. I was a girl then, my chest its own walled garden. How many ladders to gather an orchard? I had only one, and a long patience with lit hands, and the looking of the stars which moved right through me, the way the water moved through the canals with a voice that seemed to speak of this moonless gathering and those who had gathered before me. I put, put the peaches in the pond's cold water, all night up the ladder and down, all night my hands twisting fruit as if I were entering a thousand doors, 
all night my back a straight road to the sky. And then, out of its own goodness, out of the far fields of the stars, the morning came. And inside me was the stillness a bell possesses, just after it has been rung, before the metal begins to long again for the clapper's stroke. The light came over the orchard. The canals were silver and then were not. And the pond was, I could see as I laid the last peach in the water, full of fish and eyes. And I'm not quite sure why, but it just because, maybe just because the poem begins with her father saying she could not do it, that this uh, gathering of peaches at night uh, just seems to me, even though she says in the poem, I was still a girl then, uh, it feels like some kind of separation. And Sharon Olds in this next poem, the American poet Sharon Olds, who was born in 1942, um, just uh, sort of spells that separation out uh, uh, more clearly. Uh, this is her wonderful poem called The Month of June, 13 and a half. And I hope in my daughter's 13 and a half, I have the wherewithal to uh, see her in this uh, joyful way. It says, as our daughter approaches graduation and puberty at the same time, at her own calm, deliberate, serious rate, she begins to kick up her heels, jazz out her hands, thrust out her hip bones, chant, I'm great, I'm great. She feels eighth grade coming open around her, a chrysalis cracking and letting her out. It falls behind her and joins the other husks on the ground, seventh grade, sixth grade, the magenta rind of fifth grade, the hard jacket of fourth when she had so much pain, third grade, second, the dim cocoon of first grade back there somewhere on the path and kindergarten, like a strip of thumb-sucked blanket taken from the actual blanket they wrapped her in at birth. The whole school is coming off her shoulders like a cloak unclasped, and she dances forth in her jerky, sexy child's joke dance of a self, self, her throat tight and a hard new song coming out of it, while her two dark eyes shine above her body like a good mother and a good father who look down and love everything their baby does the way she lives their love. There you go. And this next one is by the American poet James Wright who lived from 1927 to 1980. And I have a question for everybody out there after I read the poem. The poem is called Autumn Begins in Martin's Ferry, Ohio. And this is what it says. In the Shreve High football stadium, I think of Pollocks nursing long beers in Tiltonsville and gray faces of Negroes in the blast furnace at Benwood and the ruptured night watchman of wheeling steel dreaming of heroes. All the proud fathers are ashamed to go home. Their women cluck like starved pullets, dying for love. Therefore, 
their sons grow suicidally beautiful at the beginning of October and gallop terribly against each other's bodies. That last stanza, actually the whole thing's worth reading again, it's short enough. In the Shreve High foot in the Shreve High football stadium, I think of Pollocks nursing long beers at Tiltonsville, and grey faces of Negroes in the blast furnace at Benwood, and the ruptured night watchman of wheeling steel, dreaming of heroes. All the proud fathers are ashamed to go home. Their women cluck like starved pullets dying for love. Therefore, their sons grow suicidally beautiful at the beginning of October and gallop terribly against each other's bodies. Now, when I first read that, um, not only is it, does it uh, confirm the cliche of in, in the Midwest, in um, Appalachia, in the South, in um, in Texas, I mean, how many other places? Uh, uh, it's the, the the cliche of Friday night high school football and what it means to, especially to small communities, especially to small rural communities, um, is not a joke. It's a real thing. It's a cliche for a reason. Um, you could set Friday night lights probably uh, in any of those places and uh, probably could have done it where I went to high school. And when I first read the poem, it seemed to be a great evocation of what Friday night was uh, when I was in high school um, in the mid and late 90s. But then, uh, as I kept reading it, I wondered, is this poem actually kind of mean um, by making this assumption? Is this the kind of poem that actually a teenager in high school, uh, perhaps somebody like me, would have written? basically saying, oh, uh, your parents hate each other, your dad doesn't want to go home, your mom's sitting at home alone, uh, your dad works a shit job, and uh, all any of them can do is hope that you do good at football on Fridays. Is it a version of that? Um, I sent this to a friend of mine, uh, Jeff, and he sort of saw it in that second way. He saw it as a bit of, perhaps of James Wright, um, uh, sort of getting back at certain people that he remembered um, in his own uh, childhood and teenage years. And I don't really know uh, if that's the case um, or, or what it is. But uh, it strikes me that this is one of the poems that is about something that most of us in America can relate to and um, written very, very simply and very vividly. And it can give rise to uh, many different reactions. And I just have two other poems here. This one is from Emily Dickinson, and again, she lives from 1830 to 1886, and it's possible that she wrote this when she was 30, uh, in her 30s, or at least her late 20s, but again, it sounds like a teenager to me. It sounds like uh, the kind of realization that uh, certain uh, people have nowadays fairly early, and that it was hard enough for Emily Dickinson to have uh, when she did. And uh, this is what the poem says. I'm seated. I've stopped being theirs. The name they dropped upon my face with water in the country church is finished using now. And they can put it with my dolls, my childhood, and the string of spools. I finished threading, too. 
baptized before without the choice, but this time consciously of grace, unto supremest name, called to my full, the crescent dropped, existence's whole arc filled up with one small diadem. My second rank, too small the first, crowned, crowning, on my father's breast, a half-unconscious queen, but this time adequate, erect, with will to choose or to reject, and I choose just a crown like that, and I choose just a crown. And I think at least, uh, if I'm remembering the episode I did on Emily Dickinson, it was at least high school or what little college she was able to get um, that she was able to turn her back in, on, in some way um, from the religious pressures of her day. So maybe that is even a reflection of that. And this last poem is, and you'll forgive me for doing so many poems tonight, but uh, childhood is such an endless, um, an endless subject. This is from the Irish poet Lewis McNeese, who lived from 1907 to 1963. And by the, by the time you get to the end of it, you realize this is uh, already looking back. This is already uh, sunny nostalgia and um, the, memory of, uh, the memory of something lost. It's Frillingetti in the candy shop with the girl that he has a crush on. And it's Elliot more serious, but uh, no less uh, no less vivid or heartfelt than uh, Frillingetti, uh, the children in the leaves, and all the rest of it in memory and time. And so this is Lewis McNeese's poem called Soap Suds. This brand of soap has the same smell as once in the big house he visited when he was eight. The walls of the bathroom open to reveal a lawn where a great yellow ball rolls back through a hoop to rest at the head of a mallet held in the hands of a child. And these were the joys of that house, a tower with a telescope, two great faded globes, one of the earth, one of the stars, a stuffed black dog in the hall, a walled garden with bees, a rabbit warren, a rockery, a vine under glass, the sea, to which he has now returned. The day, of course, is fine, and a grown-up voice cries, play. The mallet slowly swings, then crack. A great gong booms from the dog-dark hall, and the ball skims forward, through the hoop, and then through the next, and then through hoops where no hoops were, and each dissolves in turn, and the grass has grown head high, and an angry voice cries play, but the ball is lost, and the mallet slipped long since from the hands under the running tap that are not the hands of a child. <laughs> 